Hi there, everyone. I'm Gwen Jones, and welcome once again to the I'm a Rotarian podcast, the weekly podcast where I introduce you to amazing people who proudly call themselves Rotarians. This week, I've got part one of a two-part interview with Ron Tillis. Ron is not only a proud Rotarian, but he also runs a hospital during the time of COVID-19. Woodby Health is the only hospital in rural Island County in Washington State. And Ron talks to me about the four-way test, talks to me about hospital leadership during the time of COVID-19, and talks to me in between literally phone call after phone call from everyone from board of directors, surgeons, and the United States Navy. Ron's work is truly never done. And being a Rotarian is something that he brings to the hospital every single day. So join me, won't you, for part one with our interview with Ron Tillis and his experience with COVID-19 and would-be health. As always, thank you for joining me. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It is really awesome to have you back. And I am very excited and yet really kind of concerned and yet really kind of honored to have my friend, uh, Ron Tillis, who's here with us today, who's not only a Rotarian, but has the official title of running a regional hospital during the time of COVID-19. So Ron, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast in this very small window opportunity that I have you. Uh, you're more than welcome, Gwen. You're a good friend and a good Rotarian. Ah, uh, well, thank you so much. Well, I we're gonna do the we're gonna do at least some of the questions that we normally do during these podcasts, and uh, I will I will throw myself under the bus to say that I sent them to your uh, assistant, but. I guess she didn't send them to you, so it, they'll be they'll be off the cuff. It'll be hot. Oh, it'll be I, great. So you sent this earlier, so I could have been well prepared. You could have. Words. You could have done yeah. the cliff well, notes. You know, you it, it, this this goes with the coronavirus. You're never prepared for this. You're like never this. prepared for these things. So, so why don't get going? So why don't we dabble in a little bit of like? Why don't you officially give the audience your title of who exactly you are besides a Rotarian? Uh, besides a Rotarian, I'm the chief executive officer, as Gwen said, of a small rural health care system uh, here on Whidbey Island. Uh, it's called Whidbey Health. We are a, what they call a critical access hospital. Uh, and we do basically all the same things of a acute care hospital other than the major trauma, you know, okay. spines, brain injuries. We do orthopedic general, we deliver babies, we do gynecology work, and we also have seven clinics on our island, which as you know, is a very long island, so we have it kind of spread out through our communities. Uh, wow. It's about, for, for size-wise of a critical access, we're about a $100 million uh, organization. So, and you've been there, what, two years now, three years? I've been here for five years. Five years, uh, sorry. Previously, <laughs> I wasn't always the CEO. I was a CFO for uh, a little over four years at the time. Uh, and then the change about a year ago happened. Wow. Just in time for Corona. Just in time. 
All right, so let's start with some of these questions. And I know that that uh, Corona and the hospital will break into these questions more than once. But uh, and I know that that you've already given me a disclaimer that you're going to be looking over to your left because as we literally are interviewing, you are literally getting texts by uh, the Naval Air Base. So for our audiences, we have a very large uh, would-be Naval Air Base at the end of our island. So you you are working in cooperation with the government as we speak. That's correct. <laughs> and as so. we speak, there is activity abound like it's happening in the rest of the country and the rest of the world and in our state. So okay. we are, we, we thought uh, it was on the way down, but actually it's rising again. All right. So we're going to, we're going to do some hybrid questions. So I okay. know you are very much a Rotarian and yes. I know you, you, you honor me by being in my club, which is super cool. But how did you get to know about Rotary? What was your first interaction with Rotary? So, you know, it's one of those organizations which you hear about. Uh, my family was never a Rotarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I became a, uh, a CFO probably a long time ago, 1998, uh, to a hospital in Carson City, Nevada. Mm-hmm. And part of the idea was as an executive, you need to give back to your community in any way. Right. Uh, even though we're in healthcare and in healthcare, we do kind of our, our calling is to give back in healthcare, whether you're a clinician or not. It was another way to channel your activities to give back to the community. And so I lived about 25 to 30 miles south of Carson City in a small town called Gardnerville. And Gardnerville, Nevada had a rotary group. And so I uh, decided, you know, it's close to my home. They were meeting in the afternoon. They met at a casino. I said, <laughs> what could go wrong? You know? Wow, that is the first time I've ever heard of a Rotary Club that meets at a casino. I mean, we they, meet at cocktail yeah. hour now, but a casino. Uh, they, they met at Sharky's Casino uh, in Garnerville, and I uh, was kind of a transplant from – the Bay Area of California, and I was, i just give you an example, I was nicely dressed with a tie, and this is Gardnerville, which is a lot of ranchers, a lot of agriculture. Uh, they had no idea who I was and why I was there with, uh, and I was wearing a suit at the time because I was a CFO, so I got all excited. No, because I haven't so seen I you in a suit ever, so that's pretty no. impressive. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was, I was a youngin. I was you were a youngin. youngin. Okay. So going into Sharky's Casino, Love it. dimly lit, a lot of pictures of stallions and cowboys and looking around, I said, holy cow, what the heck am I getting myself into? And basically it was a bunch of ranchers. And yet in my head, you know, they're cowboys. Uh, they were very fulfilling in their jobs of giving back to their community, whether it's for helping raise a barn, whether it's uh, finding a, a family that has in need of groceries or food or the crops were bad or, and whatever. And so it was truly uh, that atmosphere of giving back and giving oneself back. And so that's how I started Rotary and, and truly enjoyed it. Uh, and I said, you know what, it's a good, is a good organization to give back to your community. So that's how I started. Ah, so then, because but you also mentioned that no one else in your family is a Rotarian, because I know you've got some kids. 
I met I, them not too long ago. So I yeah, they're okay. So they're old. Yes, I'm they're, old. They're You're older. Right. I was okay. there. On, I was there on vacation with my thirty plus old one too. So yes, they they do see dad uh, giving back to the community, and they do know what Rotor is. And you know, it's interesting who we are as people uh, giving back to our community, whether it's in our jobs or not. They elected jobs that are somewhat in what in uh, providing care back, which is one of my daughters works for American Cancer Society. Nice. Uh, the other is one is a teacher. Mm-hmm. So they, they do want to give back. And I eventually I know as time permits, they have to become a Rotarian. It's just required, I think. <laughs> it's, but I have to admit, in all of these interviews, season after season that I keep doing, there are very few pe- Rotarians that have family members in Rotary. It's kind of weird. Is that right? Yeah. There's I, very few. Yeah. I would probably say 80% of people do not say they have another family member in Rotary. And maybe that's an opportunity for us as Rotarians, you know, as, as, especially as we're trying to bring youth into our Rotary groups. Um, Mm I, my, my oldest is 34. And so she would be a perfect example of someone who gives back in the cancer world, but also wants to give back in other parts. That's just who they are. Right. So maybe we're missing something there. Yeah, maybe. So then what was your most inspirational experience in Rotary? Oh, God, inspirational. You got an inspirational one? I, I, I actually think, and it's going to weave back to our current situation, uh, which was the coronavirus and how not just our Rotary group, but all the clubs on the island uh, really got together just to give a backdrop, you know, Critical access hospitals are not flush with money. We don't have a lot. We know we weren't prepared for a pandemic. Now, we may have been prepared for an earthquake and a fire and a, and a crash of a jet or something, but we're never really prepared for a pandemic, and shame on us for not doing that. And so when this crisis hit, we're the only hospital on the island. We're on an island, mm-hmm. and yet we had limited abilities to have the basics as we started getting inundated in our hospital, in our clinics, with people with symptoms. And that means gowning up and gowning off. That means masking up, masking off for every patient you see. That means putting on goggles. That means putting on the gloves, putting on the hairnets, put on the booties. All those things to protect those healthcare workers were being depleted at such a fast rate that we, we couldn't have enough supplies. And when John and our group, you know, emailed me saying, hey, what can us as Rotarians do for you during this crisis? It was, hey, we just need help protecting our own employees from getting this this virus. And it was amazing that all four of the clubs on this island got together, put their resources together to knock, not knock on the front door, but come to our front door with boxes and boxes and boxes of PPEs, mm-hmm. uh, things that we couldn't get a hold of because our supply chain was broken, because every hospital in the country was needing supplies, and we were a small hospital, didn't have access. And it was that was so inspirational, not only to me as a Rotarian, but for this Whidbey Health family we have here, mm-hmm. to see those boxes come through our front door from our materials manager and, and, and pulling them, bringing them back, saying, my gosh, that was truly to our nurses, to our physicians, to our, all our clinicians who gave patient care, 
that truly was inspirational to them too. So it was, it was very heartwarming. And for me, it was like, that's why we're Rotarians. You know, that's why we do what we do because those, it may be a small thing, but it protected lives. And, and that was pretty impactful to everyone. Now so. I know I know you've you've and and yeah it was it was cool to see you get those and it was but one one thing that I I you did say before that you said that the hospital was not allowed for quite some time to do what was called elective surgery is that correct that now, is correct if I'm understanding it correctly that's how a rural hospital pays its bills <laughs> right that is the biggest resources of of monies. Uh, for right. Us to survive. So, is there a direct and and I'm not I'm not going to be political. I'm not going to be any of that kind of stuff. But it does. It, you're in kind of an interesting. You're not a Cedar Sinai, or no. an or an or even a you know Mayo Clinic or no. Right, you're not a Mayo right. Clinic. You're not. So so if you don't have electric electric elect, you know uh, if you don't have that kind of surgery, <laughs> elective surgery, does that mean you had no money then to purchase P PPE? I mean, is it, is it like one, does one hand kind of fit in the other during this time of COVID? During, during this time, it would have been that way. Okay. Uh, and I will have to say, and, and we kind of alluded uh, to it at a previous meeting we had uh, for Rotary is that this hospital, like most rural hospitals in our country, and a lot of them have, uh, have been bankrupt or declared bankruptcy about 55 already this year. Uh, wow. We, we have a real hard time struggling because we stopped all those really profitable elective surgeries. But it was, and I really want to thank our elected officials on the island, Helen Price Johnson, Congressman Larson, all, all of them that I wrote uh, saying, hey, we're running out of funds here, folks. And we're the only island in town and we're taking care of not only our community, but the Navy-based community that lives on the island that you referred to, they all got together and really went to bat for us, whether it's to our Governor Inslee or to the President's uh, CARES Act. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get um, monies for the loss of revenue, and that's about $7.2 million. That we got about uh, two months ago, and we're still doing really, we're doing well. Not great, we're doing right. well. You're doing uh, well. But enough to continue providing the best care we can to our community. So I, there's, when we, when I usually do the 10 questions about halfway through, we always talk about the four way test and service above self. Yeah. Now service above self, I can speak as somebody who's witnessed you over the last few months that, you know, I've seen you just excited to get in on a zoom call with a beer in your hand and saying, Hey, <laughs> I haven't slept in like, 24 hours, but I'm here, you know? So I know the service above self you have down during this time, but have you thought at all about the four-way test during the time of COVID and during the time of? You know, our, the four-way test is one of those things that I think that's what we do in healthcare a lot. Okay. You know, uh -oh. And bam, just like that, Ron was gone. His board of directors had called about something incredibly important and we had to stop the interview. That is what I promised him. It is COVID-19 and running a hospital first, podcast definitely second. How about even third, Ron? No problem whatsoever. 
We gave it a few minutes. He got off the phone and he was back. It's going to happen more and more. I'm sorry. So, so the four-way test. All right. right? Back and so, we're yeah. back. <laughs> and we're back. Sorry. No, when the board chair calls, you got to I, so you know, I we'll make you. I got to say, we will make it very clear to everybody in this podcast that I, I feel that we are sneaking you through this as best as our abilities, knowing that, yeah, you do have health flights that are taking off behind you. So, so tell <laughs> so, me, tell me about so, the four way so, test. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's, that's the excitement of being in healthcare, especially for a community hospital like us, especially for a hospital that serves a distinct population. And we're the only ones in town is when you have to make decisions based on certain requirements. And that four-way test really relates to that. Because you wanna first of all say, you know, whatever is coming this way as a CEO or a CFO or any or CNO, Chief Nursing Officer, is, is the information I'm getting truthful? Is it truthful? And really that's the big thing because sometimes there's things that are not always what they appear to be. And then mm -hmm. when you do make a decision, is it fair? Is it fair to everyone? You know, is that the right thing, not just for one little population, but for everyone? And if we do the, the decision we make, does it bring goodwill and does it benefit everyone? And those are decisions in healthcare that really are important. And that's why when hard decisions, um, whether to, you know, to do uh, close a, to close or open a clinic, Right. Boy, that's the hardest thing. And I relate that to the four-way test. Is it the right thing to do? It almost is that kind of basic calling of, is it the right thing to do? Am I doing it just for a sliver or slice of a decision or for everyone? And healthcare is that to me. And that's kind of why I went into healthcare. Because really? it is, yeah, it is affects. Our decisions affect everyone. And, I, and, and giving back it's not giving back to a single group of people, but for everyone. And, and, and that's the big thing we're seeing in, in our country right now, you know, is, is that diversity and that understanding of what's going on. And, and is it just for the whole population or a sliver of the population? And so we're coming to terms with that with a nation. So you're saying it's an exciting time in medicine. Is it really I, an exciting? Because I don't see that. I mean, I, when, I, when I look I at healthcare think, workers, I look at tired guys with PPE on, <laughs> with beautiful music in the background, and we're all supposed to, you know, you know, hang think, on to them. I think it's a challenging time, but at the same time, very exciting. I mean, we I, if I talk to physicians, when I talk to nurses, when I talk to technicians, they are, they are being pushed to the, to the limit at times. But also, mm -hmm. this is their calling. This is what they do. That's the excitement of it. It's like uh, you, you, you hear people going into uh, mass units during uh, troubled times in war and stuff. They're pumped. Is it, is it a lot of work? Heck yeah. But they're so saving that adrenaline that, that adrenaline yeah. feed. And that's why there's some people who love ED work, some people who don't, who just love walk-in clinics. So it, it, it is that craziness, but... It is exciting and challenging times. Um, and we will get over this. There is no doubt in my mind we will get over this. Uh, will we change for, forever? I think we will be changed forever. Really? How, do you, how do you think, how do you think the world will that, be changed? 
I think for, I think the even the simple idea of wearing a mask during these crises, we've learned that that does stop the transmission. Mm-hmm. I think by washing our hands appropriately, I think that stops transmission. I think of watching our distance even now. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of now are becoming sub, is creeping into our subconscious of be, being careful. Is that going to change how we do? I think it will. It will change the flu season potentially in the future. Mm-hmm. We become now aware of the transmission rates of how disease are transmitted, especially the flu-like viruses. So it is going to change us. We are going to get used to Zoom. In healthcare, we have people working from home now. Never thought that would happen. You know, there's always, yeah, I mean, whether it's the billers, whether it's the coding of the coders, all these things that come into the hospital, get into your system, break it out. Now they're at home. And so we have evolved with this and it pushed us to Mm -hmm. a certain degree. You know, one thing that I have found fascinating is the the people's misunderstanding. I mean, I think people understand the whole idea of masks and social distancing. And there is an anti-masker people out there and we bless them. You know, that's their thing. I'm sorry that masks somehow turned political. But one thing that I find very interesting is this, this constant conversation about ICU beds and that intensive care and we have to have these beds. So it ha- first of all, how many intensive care beds does would-be general have? And then how many are designated for COVID? In other words, if I'm driving down the road and God forbid I need an intensive care unit, do I go in next to somebody on a ventilator with COVID? So it depends on each hospital. For, okay. for Whitby Health, we have, we have built six ICU beds and, and almost all ICB, ICU beds are one patient only. Okay. I mean, you cannot have two ICU beds. You can't. So we have six. We also, because of COVID and the activity that we think is going to reoccur, we purchased a 15-bed ICU tent, kind of like a big mass unit that's enclosed, heated, ready for, and we just put it up and boom, it's ready. So we have 21 real ICU beds. But those, are all, to, but those are all ICU beds. So if right. somebody's when in a car would, accident or somebody needs an ICU bed, right. and I think when that's you, what's getting kind of confused with people is that, you know, yeah. if somebody says we have a hundred and we're at 120% capacity, I'm not, I yeah. guess we're not sure what that means. In, in so <laughs> You really, you treat everyone. You cannot treat when you become like we had COVID activity and COVID inpatients, you try to segregate the COVID patients to one area. Right. So you don't, but it is taking up beds because you're always going to treat those that come in to break their legs. You're always going to treat one that has a congestive heart failure. You're going to treat someone who has a, a, a trauma. So you're going to have to treat them. Just because they don't have coronavirus doesn't mean that you just keep them safe in this separate location. That's why it became so important for hospitals to have negative air pressure. So that means that the, the air that's in the is blown out, not kept within the hospital. So it's not recirculated. So not recirculated. So you blow it all out. You come in and it's just blown out, uh, filtered out to the airways. Is that, so, are most hospitals doing that now? 
Most hospitals have some. We realize that we need a lot more, don't we? Yeah, uh, it's, gotcha. It's a learned thing. So for us, we know that if we do get the surge that we expect in the fall, and the governor's uh, expects this to begin in the fall again, uh, is that you will have a 15 beds or whatever beds that say this is just going to be our COVID activity Area. place. That's it. That's it. That's where you're going to segregate them. Uh, that's the way you have to do. And, and, you know, it would be like that in any other pandemic. Uh, but this is a learn. this is our first pandemic in the United States. Uh, and we've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. So, oh, 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 who is it? Who is it this time? Well, this is, hello, this is Ron. <laughs> and just like that, Ron was gone again. This time, unfortunately, he had to speak to a surgeon immediately about a patient in some type of distress at the hospital. And so I respectfully said that it was time to cut the interview off for this week. Ron was very, very kind to say that he would be willing to sit down with me again for part two because he wants his story out there and he wants to share with everyone life in a rural hospital, life as a Rotarian, and life for him during COVID-19. So uh, please come back and join me again. I thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, download, rate, and subscribe. And if you have someone like Ron or any other Rotarian that I should know about, please feel free to get in touch with me. You can get to me at rotarianpod at gmail.com. All right, then. Until next week. When we can sit down with Ron for part two of our interview, take care of yourself and the world around you. And thank you as always for listening to the I'm Rotarian podcast. We will hear you and Ron next week. Take care, everybody.